Welcome back to Coffee Conversations and Badasses Podcast. I'm your host, Dustin Hayes. Before we get to business, don't forget to like, subscribe, and share the shit out of these episodes. And go to our Patreon and become part of the badass community. Now, our next guest from Hollywood to downright disasters in life. And we're going to get into her story of how she fell to the bottom and is rising to the top. Brandy Phillips, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing all right. I can't complain other than um, I have nothing to complain about. Well, it's still early in the day. Yeah, but that's not how my brain works. Like if I can't complain in the morning, screw it. I have nothing (laughs) to complain about at night. Because okay. it usually starts in the morning. That's when I stack my first loss. That's usually when you're in a relationship, it starts in the morning. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> I, we, what do you mean what starts in the morning? <laughs> the complaining. Oh, man. I was, thought you were talking about something else. I was like, you know, like how do we start this day off right? Like, You didn't squeeze the toothpaste right. You didn't make the bed. Oh, you didn't give me. me sex in the morning. It's oh. the complaining. It's a woman thing. It, that I just had flashbacks to being married. <laughs> Am I right? Yeah, no, you're, you're right. I forgot what it's like to be in a long-term relationship. Yeah. And now I'm probably going to go another six years without it. I traumatized you. You did again. <laughs> you know, now the years of therapy have just been unraveled by one sentence. And we just started this show. You're welcome. Thank you. I appreciate it. (laughs) So you grew up in San Fernandino. San Fernando Valley. Yeah. Fuck it. I knew I was going to fuck it up. Yeah. It's all right. And your life has not been an easy one by any stretch of imagination, especially as as a kid. No, it has not. Yeah? No. What happened to you when you were younger? Um... Where do I begin? Uh, in all honesty, it all started when I was 14. So up until then, I had a really great life. I had two loving parents. I had my brother. I had two half sisters. Uh, we lived a great life. My dad built cars, uh, was into low riders. We built literally old cars from the ground up, paint, everything. I was in the garage with my dad every day. My, he always said I should have been the boy and my brother should have been the girl. Um, How did your brother take that? He didn't care. He just drove the cars. He's like, <laughs> whatever. Um, but my dad built cars for the quarter mile. Like he loved to race. We just, our weekends were racing. We were at car shows. We were at the lake, like just the greatest childhood. And, um, my mom was, uh, diagnosed with cancer and she had been in remission and, uh, it had come back the summer of 1992. And it was my parents' wedding anniversary that, uh, August 18th, August 15th, I think. And it was their 25th wedding anniversary. So we knew my mom was really sick and we were planning this huge, you know, uh, surprise party, flying in family everywhere, all this kind of stuff. And we had a great party. But the night after my brother and his best friend, who was my first love, went to a party and they got drunk and the keys were in the ignition, but we lived in a small town. This was in Northern California. So it was Red Bluff, California. And we lived in a small town, so everybody knew everybody. So the cops impounded my parents' car 
and took my brother and him to the local library to let them sleep it off. And so they come back. My brother had to go get my parents' car out of the impound. My parents took Mike's truck to drop family off at the airport and left me, Mike, and my girlfriend at the house. Well, Mike and I decided we were going to go get something to eat and watch a movie, but the only truck that was available for us to take was a 1967 Chevy California Special. They only made 1,100 of them. My dad was building it and he was switching it from automatic to a manual. So there was a big hole in the floorboard and it was in the garage. And um, everyone knew you could start it with a screwdriver. You didn't need the keys, but he's like, you know, let's just take the truck. And I was like, no. Like my dad will kill us if we take that truck. It's like, we're just going up the street. We'll come back, like whatever. And I fought with him. I really did. And then I was like, you know what? If I go and just make sure that he doesn't do anything with it, you know, cause they, we all raced. And so we left and we stopped at a, a burger joint, saw a friend, and then we were on our way to his house. Now in Red Bluff, it's, two main streets. There's like one main street and another main street. That's it. It's country living, you know? And one of the main streets uh, turned into Highway 99, which goes the back way to Chico State. So everybody partied out there. It was like party central. You know, everyone always said, you know, Chico State was a party state or party college of the of California. And, and two guys that were on the run from a stolen vehicle and attempted to rape two girls. One of them had the same name as me and was almost the same age. Uh, had gotten past a roadblock on I-5 and had gone through town to take the Highway 99 the back way. Well, we met them at a stoplight. We didn't know any of this, obviously. So there's two lanes, center divider and two lanes. They were on the outside, we were on the inside. And they were yelling, screaming, you know, like, let's let's race, let's this, let's that. And I kept looking over at Mike and I was like, no, like, don't like, you know, let's just go. And so we took off and we took off really fast and just to get away from them. And I didn't have my seatbelt on, thank God. But at some point they had rammed the side of my door on the truck, like hit us and rammed it, which had sent us into the center divider, but also at a, like a, a slide. And their car had lost control. And when their car lost control, it clipped the rear end of our truck, which sent us even into a more of a sideways slide. Well, as this is all happening, there was a gas station up ahead uh, that had a big, huge gravel area where you could pull off and rest and, you know, do whatever there was a diesel truck with a Caterpillar attached to the back of it that was going across our two-lane center divider to go the opposite direction. He sees us coming. He bails from the diesel truck and we hit directly uh, at 84 miles an hour. They they had put in the, the police report right into the diesel tank. That exploded now, the truck that I was in also had the gas tank inside the cab behind the seat that was known to explode on impact over 45 miles an hour. And GMC said they would rather deal with the lawsuits than recall all the vehicles. That also exploded. We hit so hard that the truck bent into a C-shape and the bed of the truck flew over 500 feet. Mike was killed instantly. I was on the floorboard. They pronounced us both dead at the scene. There was two guys uh, that were part of the construction crew 
that happened to be volunteer firefighters. And they ran in to save his body and found me on the floorboard by chance and pulled me out. When they pulled me out, uh, all they had, you know, the fire department had got there and all they had was one of those red boards. And the guy, Howie, who who actually pulled me out, his brother, him and Mike, um, they were the two that, that went in out of everybody that was there. He laid me on the board and he said, as they were strapping me down, he said, I broke the straps on the board and I got up and I ran back into the fire to get Mike. I was screaming for him. And he ran back in the fire after me, pulled me out. um, And at that point, the ambulance was there. And all I remember from that point is just seeing the ambulance doors as I was being rolled into the back of the ambulance. As all of this is going on, my parents are at Sacramento Airport seeing off family. And my neighbor was this old man who sat in his garage and he had a police scanner because his wife had died. So that's all he ever did was just listen to everything that went on in town. And my aunt had showed up at the house and he obviously knew our vehicles, ran across the street and told my aunt, because they had said we were pronounced dead, told my aunt what was going on called my mom at the airport. They paged my parents at the airport, told my parents that both of us had died in a car accident. Five minutes later, they heard it on the police scanner that I was being um, taken to the local hospital and they called my mom back at the airport and said, "Your, your daughter's alive. She's being flown to UC Berkeley Burn Center. So from there, I was still in the local, um, tiny little hospital. They didn't know what to do with me. They had never had anybody of that significance, you know, burned and and whatnot. How significantly burned were you? I had 33% of my body was burned, but it was gas and diesel. So it was a multi-purpose burn. So the solution that they had wasn't enough to stop my skin from burning. I, I burned for hours. Like it burned to the bone on one of my arms. That's how bad it was. Um, But I woke up to Mike's sister and her boyfriend and she was crying because there was nobody else to be there for me. And I just remember asking her like, what's happening? You know, like, I don't know what's going on. Like what's happening? And she's crying. And next thing you know, I'm fading. I kept fading in and out. Like, and they finally sedated me. And they transported me to the local airport And then they flew me in an airplane. And I can tell you something right now, out of the entire three months of being in the hospital, that airplane ride was by far the worst pain I had ever felt in my entire life. When they put me on the airplane, they didn't fly me with a nurse. It was just my aunt and the pilot. And I was strapped down on a gurney in the back to a wall. And I remember I could see outside the window Because I was still burning, the air conditioning on the airplane hitting those wounds and they couldn't cover them. So the air hitting those wounds, I screamed bloody murder for 45 minutes. And my I could hear my aunt crying in the front, just saying, we're almost there. We're almost there. I mean, I screamed. I don't forget a second of that trip. And when I got there, We landed at the airport. They flew me from a helicopter to the top of uh, 
UC Berkeley Burns Center. And the last thing I remember going through the doors again was both my parents' face because they had met me there. They were there already. And I went into immediate surgery. And I was in surgery for, I want to say, I think they said it was like 16 hours. Oh, wow. <clears throat> yeah. What did they do during surgery? I had to have multiple skin grafts. So on my arms, my back. Do you know how they got it stopped from burning? It's solution. It's as, some yeah, solution. you have to keep pouring solution on it. But there was a good hour and a half that no solution was being poured on me. Oh. So it was it was brutal. <clears throat> From there, uh, they had put me uh, in an induced coma. So I was um, a heavily sedated coma. I would come to uh, periodically. And the first thing that I would ask about was Mike. And as soon as I asked about him, my heart rate would shoot up off the charts and they'd have to sedate me again. So I didn't- But still at this point, you didn't know if Mike was alive. I didn't know. So a month into my stay, um, finally, uh, my parents, because my mom was battling breast cancer at the time. So she was at UC Davis. I was at UC Berkeley and they had rented a house, but I never saw my parents. I was in there by myself because my dad was having to take care of my mom. My mom was dying. So here my dad has his daughter fighting for her life and his wife dying of cancer at the same time. And so I woke up to my parents and Mike's parents in my room. And I knew right then and there, I was like, and there was a photo album. And I knew right then and there that, it wasn't good. And they did. They they told me that he died. And of course, you know, I lost it. And but they did, you know, go on to tell me that they had gotten, you know, a, purchased a, a regular casket at first. And then they decided last minute they switched it to an oak casket and they provided everybody at the funeral with Sharpies. And they had put a picture that Mike and I had taken just a few days before from the accident together at his grandma's house. And they put that in the casket for us. And everyone, almost everyone there signed my name for me on the casket. So my name was on there. I, can, I don't even know how many times it was on there, but it was on there for me. So I was thankful, you know, to, to know that, um, that everybody, you know, did that for me while I was fighting for my life. But from there, um, because I was in the hospital by myself so much, I took a liking to this nurse. His name was Jacques. He was this older black man. He was probably in his seventies. That's a cool last name too. Yeah, Jacques. And uh, at first I, I hated all the women in there. I hated everyone because everyone kept, you know, they were drawing blood from me. They couldn't get it out of my hands anymore. Then they were trying to take it from my feet, you know, and I had to go through drug rehabilitation because I had a morphine drip on my hand and I had to learn how to walk again. I had to learn how to do all these things, you know, and so I hated all the women in there. Like I just wanted them to all leave me alone, except for this one old guy. He came in and he didn't put up with my shit. Like he was just like, you know what? He's like, you're going to do what I say. And there's, that's it. You're just going to do it. And I was like, all right, whatever. So I had to be lowered into these tanks, these sterile tanks. It looked like this ginormous horse trough, like this room was cool. And 
he lowered me down in and this is the first time anyone had given me a bath and I wouldn't let anyone else do it but him. And so he lowered me down in and he hands me a scalpel. And I'm like, what am I going to do with this? And he goes, you're going to remove something. And I was like, okay. And he takes this bandage off my leg. And it's from like the top of my thigh to like mid-calf. And he takes the bandage off. And it was a blister. This big. I mean, it was close to two feet long and it stuck out probably a good five inches, the biggest blister I've ever seen in my entire life. And he's like, you're going to cut that off. And I, I just remember looking at it. I was like, wow, like that's crazy. And so I started, and when I started cutting it off, like metal from the truck came out, paint chips came out, parts of, um, Mike's hair came out like, you know, and I, all of a sudden I stopped and I start, I literally started crying because that was, I felt like that he would, you know, that part of him was no longer with me, you know, like all of a sudden I was like, what did I just do? Like, I didn't know, but at the same time, like, I was like, oh my God, like he was with me, like he's a part of me. And I started crying And he's like, you know what? You'll be all right. You're going to be okay. He's like, life, you know, is is really unfair. He goes, but you have a second chance. You're going to be okay. And so from there, he just became my best friend. He would come in on his nights off and play cards with me. We'd watch baseball together. Every milkshake, because I had to have tons of protein, every milkshake was a different color every time. Like he... He left his family to come be with me because he knew that my mom was dying at the same time and that I was there all alone. I was 14 years old. I was living in a glass room in the center of this burn unit. I couldn't have visitors. I couldn't have fly flowers. I couldn't have anything. Like I was just me. Yeah, Because anything introduced would be a risk for infection. Yes. And that could be deadly. Right. So he became my best friend in there and- it- did your dad get to visit you? Did he come visit you during this time? Not not often uh, because he we live six hours away from Berkeley. So he was still trying to take care of my brother who was 16. My mom was at UC Davis, which was, you know, I don't I don't know how far UC Davis is from UC Berkeley. I think it's a couple hours. I, w- um, I wouldn't know. I don't know either. But he was he was with my mom. So, and then he was traveling back and forth. And I remember there was one night, uh, he did call me every day. I did talk to him on the phone, but there was one night where he was exhausted. He had just left UC Davis and he had to go home and he had just gotten home and I called him and I was like, dad, I go, can you please come be with me? And he goes, I just got home. And I said, I know I go, but like, I need you to come be with me. My dad got in the car and he drove six hours back just to be with me. And in the three months that I was in the hospital, I saw my mom twice and my dad three times. And that was it. So your mom came and visit you in the hospital? She was there the first time that I was wheeled in and she came in the second time when Mike's parents came to tell me that he died. Wow. Other than that, my mom was never well enough to come see me. 
she was in the hospital herself. Right. And did she, I take it she eventually succumbed to cancer while you were in the hospital? She was already, she already had it when the accident happened. So right. yeah. Was she, did she pass away while you were in the hospital? No, she, I ended up um, fighting my recovery. I, I pushed it and I was able to get out of the hospital early uh, because my mom was really bad. And I, I went home and when I went home, hospice was already moving into the house and they had provided um, a service for me as well. Cause I was still bandaged up and, you know, seek, I needed medical attention daily as well. Um, so hospice had already moved in and my mom uh, passed away within the first week that I was home in our home. So that, that is a lot for everybody in your family to go through. Yeah. I mean, it's already hard enough to lose your mom at a young age because of cancer. Yeah. And going through that. And yeah. now you dealing with your, your burns and rehabilitation, because I'm sure that wasn't easy on your dad because your dad is torn between his wife and his daughter. Yeah. And still have his son that he has a raise and provide for. And mourning the death of Mike as well. You know, his, and our the, families were so close. So. And, and mourning the death like of Like losing Mike. a son. Yeah. Yeah. That can't. It, did your dad ever come to you and tell you how how he handled that? Like how he was doing? I mean, no. he has to be strong he, for everybody. He didn't. Uh, actually, my dad, when when my mom passed away, right before she took her last breath, my dad was begging me to go take a bath. He's like, you need to go take a bath. You're going to get infected. Like you need to go. And I kept fighting him on it. And finally, one of the nurses came over and said, you need to go do this. And so I looked at him and I said, I don't want to leave her side. Like I, I don't want to leave until she passes away. And he's like, just go take a bath and come back. And so I went in and I took a bath and I sat down on the toilet and I'm unwrapping my arms. And you know how you, you have an, you know, space at the bathroom door. Mm-hmm. I was looking at the bathroom door, just like that door. And all of a sudden it felt like somebody had just kicked me in the chest. Like the worst chest pain I had ever felt in my entire life. And all of a sudden I knew, I was like, my mom just died. And I see my dad's feet at the door and he knocks on the door and he's like, you need to come out. My mom waited not even five minutes after I left her side and I had spent two days by her side for her for, to pass away. She didn't want to do it in front of me. And so from there, uh, we had the funeral. Uh, I, my, I had to fulfill my mom's wishes. She wrote this letter on her, her deathbed and that letter was for me and my girlfriend to do our hair and makeup for her because that's something I always did, you know, as a cancer patient. She had me do her hair and makeup and, you know, that was our mother-daughter mother time. And so she asked that I do that and I did. It wasn't easy, but I did it. And um, then we had the funeral and I chose not to speak at the funeral. My dad didn't speak. My brother didn't speak. It was just friends and family that spoke. And I was okay up until Mike's sister, uh, at the end of the funeral, she looked up and she said to me, she said, if you share your brother, I'll share my mother. 
And I lost it because I had never thought about it. You know, she lost her brother. I lost my mom, you know, all within a three months time, less than three months. And um, I lost it. And the cool thing about where my mom was buried was this elderly woman had given up her plot uh, for my mom and Mike to be buried almost next to each other. They're, They're one headstone away from each other. So they're together. But knowing all of that and her saying that uh, really sent me over the edge. And I look over at my dad and my dad is just, he lost it too. Like just, that's when it all hit us, you know, that this is real, like this is really happening. Like, you know, and so we all left and we went home and uh, I never knew what was in this letter that my mom had written. I knew what what the first couple of things were because my dad told me, but I never knew what was in this letter that my mom had written. I never saw it. And I was home and I was in the front room and, and I hear this gunshot go off. And I was like, holy shit, like what the hell? And so I run back in the bedroom and it's my dad and he's drunk. I mean, wasted. And he has a gun in his mouth. And I'm looking at him and I'm like, what are you doing? And he's like, I don't want to live anymore. I don't want to be here. I can't handle this. And I said, I need you. Like, what are you doing? Like, I freaked out and I ran in in the kitchen and I called 911 and 911 came and they took him away on a 5150. And then it's just me left there because my brother just lost his mom. His best friend is dead. His sister was burned. You know, his dad is is just mentally lost it. And my brother was never around. He was never home. He was off four-wheel driving or racing or doing whatever he needed to do to cope with everything that happened. So I was left in this house for two days by myself, still seeking medical attention. And my dad comes home and he says, I'm gonna go to, I'm gonna go to your your grandma's house for a little while. I'll be back. Packs up his bags and he leaves. Two months goes by and I'm like, I don't know where he is. And I finally, I get my grandma's number because she wasn't a big role in our lives. You know, she had just recently come back in. So I didn't really know her very well, but I finally get the number and I call there and she's like, no, your dad hasn't been there. And I was like, what do you mean he hasn't been there? And she's like, he, he wasn't here. And I was like, okay, well now what do I do? And so I call my mom's best friend and my dad answers the phone and I hang up immediately. Eight hours later, my dad shows up at the house and he sits down in front of me and he puts the letter on the table and he pushes it in front of me. And he said, read this. It was my mom's death letter. And so I'm reading everything and it gets down at the bottom and it's at the bottom where it asks my dad to be with her best friend because she didn't want my dad to be alone. And my dad explained to me, this is why he tried to commit suicide was because he couldn't handle the fact that my mom was asking that of him on our deathbed. Like he loved my mom. Like my mom was his world. And he was choosing death over it, but then decided that he couldn't do that to me. So he went and he spent his life with her. So he packed up his stuff and he left again. 
and left me and my brother there. And that was that was it. Like he just yeah. dropped. I mean, I, there, I don't even have any good words to say of how you put this. He just straight up dropped it, dropped you kids and said, boom, I'm following the wishes and her deathbed. And just she forget about you kids. And he was out of your life at that point at 14. Yeah, he left. Wow. Yeah. I mean, he paid all the bills in the house, but as far as food and things like that, we literally had to fend for ourselves. So he would pay the mortgage or rent or whatever Uh it was. So you had a house to stay in, but he wasn't present after that. No, he was living here in LA. Wow. Yeah. Well, we're going to take a break and we're going to come back and we're going to hear the rest of your story. Um, stay tuned uh, because the rest of her story is just going to get even more crazy as her life goes on. We're going to find out how. But we couldn't make this possible without our sponsors, Next Level Lender and Red, White, and Badass Brew. Coffee as bold as American spirit. We'll see you back here in just a few minutes. Hey, cat badasses. Our Patreon is live and accepting memberships right now. And for only $3 a month, you get some cool benefits with it. Chance to win Red, White, and Badass Brews coffee every month and exclusive content, just to name a few. So go to the link, go to our Patreon account, and become a Cab Badass member. Welcome back from the break. And now you're tuning in to Coffee Conversations and Badasses Podcast with Brandy Phillips. And if you didn't catch the first half, you must watch it. But this couldn't be made possible without our sponsors, Dream Team Realty with EXP and Go Mango Productions. Brandy, your story just as in the childhood, it's not even over, is heart-wrenching. And I was I was holding back tears because I feel for you in this room right now. I feel that emotional connection and I feel helpless. You know, but your story is not over. It doesn't stop just there. Your no. dad picks up and moves. And with your uh with your mom's best friend only providing you with a house and paying house and everything else is left up to a 14 year old girl who is going through her own traumatic experience, getting burned. Her mom passed away because of cancer and your brother is held. He's 16 at the time. And he's 16 and he's coping in his own way. Yeah. And I mean, also the loss of Mike, I mean, he was like, he was my first love, you know, and he would just, he would call the house all the time and I'd answer the phone and he'd be like, let me talk to your mom. And so I put my mom on the phone. And he's like, I'm going to marry your daughter one day. You know, it just, it was just fun. Um, but yeah, losing him, my dad leaving, my brother was never around. He was always just off with his friends or four wheeling or doing whatever he needed to do to cope with, you know, the loss of everyone. How are you, know? you coping? Um, 
at that time, um, I don't think I really was. I think I was still just really numb and, and trying to understand, you know, what, what was happening and, and processing all of it. I, I spent most of my time with my girlfriends, you know, and their, their moms, I would stay the night at their house or, uh, I did move in with Mike's parents for a little while. Um, and then I moved out. Uh, it was hard for me cause I slept in his room and he had this thing where he would write everyone's names and, and phone numbers on his wall with a pencil and right above where I slept was my name with my number. And I just, I, I couldn't do it. Um, so I moved out of there and uh, I went back home. And at that point, my brother had moved in drug dealers, full on drug dealers. And that's how he was paying the bills, whatever he needed to pay. And one night I was with my girlfriend and where we lived, my mom had a fetish with roses. So we had a huge courtyard. There had to have been 150 bushes. We had a big, huge pool with a slide and a diving board. It was beautiful. You know, my mom had built water fountains, all kinds of stuff. And uh, we had a gate. We sighted our house sighted to a park and we had a gate that led up into the park and my bedroom we had turned the garage into a, a family addition and my dad had built a garage in the back for all the cars and stuff. And so we had a gate that went all the way up to the front where the garage used to be. And my bedroom window was the very first window by the front door. So I had a straight shot at the gate when I looked out my, my window. And it's like four or five in the morning, everyone had been up doing acid the night before they partied in the park. I mean, it was wild. And my girlfriend and I are in my bedroom and I hear the the lock on the gate jiggle. And I was like, what the hell? There's somebody else here. And um, I look out and when I look out, I see this blue hat that says tied. And I knew right then and there, I was like, oh shit. Like, this isn't going to be good. And I grab my girlfriend and we, I go, come on, let's go. We have to go. And so I grab my girlfriend. We go in my bathroom, out my bathroom window, around the pool, out the side gate, and up to the top of the hill at the park. And I watch drug reinforcement raid my house. My brother goes to jail. Wow. Yeah. Wait, so you just saw the hat tied. And that was enough to give you the I knew who Tide was. Yeah. I knew who Tide was. So I I I already knew right then and there. I knew we had we had small town. You know, you put a drug dealer in your house, you're guaranteed you're getting busted. It doesn't take long for them to figure it out. So sure. And yeah. you know, people come in, in and out of the house. In and out all of the time. house, yeah. the neighbors. Yeah. They, they know that the both shit. of our parents were gone. You know, I mean. Yeah, we. my accident was the biggest thing to ever happen there. So everybody knew me. They knew Mike because his family owned the optical center. They were very well known. He was the popular guy in high school. My brother was the popular guy in high school. So we weren't, <laughs> we weren't hidden. You know, everybody knew who we were. And we were the drag racers, you know, my, our family raced. So, so all eyes on us. So your brother goes to jail. What happens to you? 
I sat in the park for hours and watched and waited for it to be done and over with. Uh, my dad shows back up, obviously, to get my brother out um, and then leaves. He's He's gone again. Uh, so I lived mostly with my girlfriends. You know, I stayed with my girlfriends at their houses, their moms and whatnot. And then finally the police got involved and they said, look, you got two choices. They said, either you can go live in foster care or you can go live with your dad in LA. And so I moved down to LA and I- And your dad was accept, it was allowing you to come live with him? Uh-huh. That's- that's so interesting that, I mean, was that always on the table or was that? Um, I don't think it was ever presented. I, I don't think it was ever, there was ever a conversation about it. No, he just, I, he, I mean, he lied where he was going in the first place. So um, no, it wasn't on the table. I mean, I, I don't, it wasn't that he didn't want me there. I just don't think that he felt that I would want to be there, but that's where he was. So, um, so I go and I live with my dad in LA and I didn't last there, but maybe three months, if that, uh, a lot of anger towards my dad and I'm, I'm daddy's little girl. Like I, my dad was my world. Um, Is that what that tattoo is? Yeah. I have several of my dad. Um, but he, he was my world. Like I, I was daddy's little girl. I was always in the garage with him. I was always working on the house or this or that. I mean, I was always by his side and, um, and that was gone. And, uh, my, I call her my stepmom now, but they never got married and she's no longer in my life now. Uh, my dad passed away. Uh, but at the time she was trying to play the motherly role to me and I smacked her across the face at the table. That's a wrong thing to do. Yeah. That's... <laughs> to a 14 year old. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, my mom wasn't around. Yeah. She just left after parents divorced yeah. and had a couple of women try to be the mother, motherly role. But it was just like, pfft. yeah, I was not accepting, very accepting to any woman that came into my dad's life and tried to lay down the lump. Yeah. I mean, I didn't have, honestly, I didn't have a really great relationship with my mom. I had, I mean, I, we had a relationship, but my mom was more about my brother. Um, growing up, my brother was, uh, ADD and he was just, he was the wild child. And, um, I was the quiet, you know, I'm the baby. I was the quiet, reserved, you know, didn't get in trouble, didn't do anything. Like I was the good kid. And so my mom spent a lot of her time with my brother. Um, and I just was always with my dad because she was so busy with him. Um, I really don't remember ever. Uh, I lost a lot of my, my childhood memory in my accident. So I, I don't have any memories of my mom ever saying, I love you to me or, uh, any mom and daughter time other than doing her hair and makeup. I do remember those. Um, but anything else, uh, but at, in a dance group, I was in a dance group. I do vaguely remember bits and pieces of her being a part of that. But as far as my childhood, all my memories are with my dad. Like I don't, that's all I have. So 
Um, that's perfectly normal too. Cause that's what yeah. happens when you go through traumatic events. It races some of it out and yeah, uh, hope that I, I don't know why it does that, but it just erases some of that out and says, all right, here, it's a coping mechanism that your body is saying, Hey, I, I can understand this is creating a lot of chaos yeah. in your mind. Let me cut this out for you. That way you can move on with life. Yeah. It, it's happened. I have some memories of me growing up and some of the traumatic events, but mostly it's about the good times that I had with my yeah. dad. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the same it. with me. Everything that I, all my memories that I have are with my dad. Um, and so that relationship was gone. You know, it was just like we were two strangers you know, trying to to cope with each other in the same, under the same roof, you know, and I ended up leaving again. I went back up to NorCal, went back to the house. I was up there for like another year or so. And uh, of course, at this point, I was, I was just an asshole. You know, I was just, I didn't care what anybody said. I didn't, you know, I, I wasn't going to school. I wasn't doing what I should have done. Like, you know, how do you go from having the perfect life, the best family to all of a sudden having nothing? You know, how do you, how do you expect a 14 year old to respond to that? Exactly how you, you know, responded exactly. to it. That, and I could have been far worse than I wasn't. I'm sure you could have been. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how worse you were, or how bad you were, but uh, you know what? So how did you get you went down a, a different road. When did you start getting tattoos? Was that it- wasn't until way later on in life. There was so much more that happened in my life before I even hit the needle. Really? So, oh yeah. Yeah. So from so, there, um, from there, I, I ended up moving back down with my dad eventually after a year. And I got into this relationship at the age of 17. And it was through a family friend. I had met him once or twice. Um, And I get into a relationship with him and it's all great in the beginning, you know, just great. And I end up getting pregnant at 17 and I was four months pregnant and he came home with a shaved head and white power tattooed on the back of his arms. And I'm looking at him and I'm like, did I miss something? Like, What just happened? And he was high. He was high on something. I don't know what he was on. And he just left. And I remember sitting there just like trying to understand like what is going on. Like, I don't know what's happening right now. And from that day forward, it was the biggest nightmare of my life. I not only was abused, physically abused, I was thrown out of the truck at 45 miles an hour, six months pregnant with my daughter, I hit the grass. Thank God it was like, you know how you have grass patches and then it has the sidewalk and then it's grass again. Yeah. Thankfully, it was on a street that was like that because I hit the grass patch six months pregnant with my daughter. Just threw me out and kept going. Like that was it. Um, from there, uh, he got mad at me over something. It was Thanksgiving and he threw a turkey at my head and it barely like just skimmed the side of me and went out the window, like broke the window in the house. 
we had a glass table and everything that was on it, he, I don't even know what he used. It happened so fast, but he shattered the table. And I don't even know why. I don't know what I did. It was my very first Thanksgiving dinner I had ever cooked by myself. And he just destroyed it. And then from there, uh, he got mad at me again one night, threw a dresser drawer at me, and then pinned me in the front of our, our front door and started shooting at me with a gun, Russian roulette around my body, seven months pregnant, almost eight months pregnant with my daughter, shooting at me. From there- Wait, uh, you stayed with him at that point? Oh, I, I, he, to him, I wasn't going anywhere. I was not going anywhere. And I'll explain to you why I stayed. Um, from there, uh, what happened from there? From there, uh, I end up having my daughter. And uh, he was okay for a while. He was okay. And then it got abusive again. Uh, we did go and stay with his his mom in Northern California and it, for like three months. And it was great up there because he was around his family. But when we got back to the house, when it was just him and I is when it, it all started again. He got involved with drugs. There was people after him. My daughter was six months old and it was my brother's birthday. And him and his fiance or girlfriend at the time, I don't remember, we all decided to go to the Disneyland Hotel. And he decided because he didn't tell us that he had people after him. So this truck kept rolling by our house, like creeping by our house. And I kept seeing it. And I was like, I knew something bad was going to happen. And all of a sudden he's like, we're going to the Disneyland hotel. Get your stuff. We're leaving. Let's go. And so my brother and his wife or girlfriend at the time and me and, and the baby, my daughter, we get in the truck and we're driving to the Disneyland hotel. And we get there and we get a room and he goes immediately downstairs to the bar, you know, being an alcoholic, goes down to the bar with everyone. I'm not old enough. So I'm in the room with my daughter by myself and they all go downstairs. And then they come back upstairs and we're at the Disneyland Resort Hotel and they don't have balconies, but they have those metal railings to put all like the fake flowers and stuff in. He takes the window out of the hotel room stands on the railing in his underwear with my daughter in his hands, six months old, and it's threatening to commit suicide for the two of them. The whole Disneyland hotel gets shut down. Fire department comes in. He goes to jail. They get him out. He goes to jail. My brother and I call my dad. My dad comes and rescues us from Anaheim, takes us home. From there, I go, he gets out of jail. So I go home and I'm trying to get my stuff out of this house that we had lived in. And I waited like with my, my brother's girlfriend at the end of the block for him to leave so I could go get the baby's stuff at least. And I finally, he leaves and I get to the house and I'm in there just grabbing everything I could grab, you know, and stuffing it in bags and he shows up. And he starts coming after me and my brother's girlfriend. And somebody heard all the, like he destroyed the baby's room, had me pinned in the corner. And they called 911 and 911 finally showed up. And um, they stayed there for me to get my stuff and to get out. And so I got out from there. 
Well, with my settlement money from my accident, because I ended up suing GMC Motors, I had bought this man this really big, huge dually truck, like huge dually truck. And when I moved to my dad's, he would hide in the with the dually and the cul-de-sacs at my dad's house. And he would wait for me to leave. And when he would wait for me to leave, he would ram my car, like chase me through the streets, push me into oncoming traffic, trying to literally take my life. He would leave threatening messages on my dad's answer machines. Like, I'm going to kill you. You're not going to live without, I mean, every day, hundreds of messages. Well, we had supervised visit. We had uh, visitation rights because neither one of us had, you know, legal custody of her. So I had to let him have visitation. And so he had taken her, he was only allowed to have her for like a half of the day. And so he had taken her and we had this meeting point where he had to bring her back. And it was a Sunday, I'll never forget. And I'm waiting at the gas station and I'm waiting and I'm waiting. And we didn't have cell phones back then. So you can't just call anybody, you know? And so I finally, and it's a long ways home. So I finally get home and I'm calling the house and I'm calling and no answer, no answer. Next thing you know, the messages start coming in. You're never going to see your daughter again. I'm taking her out of state. I'm changing her name. Fuck you. You know, it's just going on. Message after message after message. So I'm calling 911. There's like, do you have, are, were you married? And I'm like, no. He goes, well, because you're not married, neither one of you technically have legal custody. There's nothing you can do. This man has kidnapped my daughter and you're telling me there's nothing I can do. So I called his dad and his dad gets involved and they had a family attorney. They end up paying five grand, which took me into the courts, um, granted me what was called an ex parte motion, which gave me full legal custody of her under under an emergency. So at that point, once I got that, they tapped the phones And they figured out where he was. He was up in Kern County at a cabin. And we kind of had an idea that he would have been there because that's where his dad used to take him fishing as a kid. That was his favorite place to be was in Kern County. And so sure enough, at the call, the trace, the calls came in. He was in Kern County. So we called Kern County Police Department. They went over there. They spotted him and they said, yes, he is here, him and one other guy. And there is a baby. Him, me and his dad drive all the way up there together. And we get to the police department and the police are like, okay, this is what we're going to do. They put me in a separate room from his dad and they're like, this is what we're going to do. You're going to follow us. And when we get there, we're going to handle whatever we need to handle. And then you're when you hear me call you, you run in, grab the baby, nothing else, get in the car and go back to the police station. So I said, okay, I'm 18 at this point. Terrified. So I'm driving behind them. I'm bawling my eyes out, not knowing what I'm going to walk into. And sure enough, there I hear all of the yelling and screaming and I'm in my car and then I hear the cops say, go. And so I run in and I come around, you come around like this, this driveway and you come around and there's a picnic table before you go in the door. And the friend is on the picnic table face down and my ex is pinned against the wall with the, the cops got his hand in his, his neck And I come around the corner and we locked eyes with each other. And he looks at me and he goes, I'm going to kill you. And the cop goes, just go, just go. And so I grabbed my daughter, got in the, the, 
the car and I drove back to the police station. So they, they handle him. Uh, they did whatever they needed to do for us. He ends up going to jail for like nine months. I think it was. For kidnapping? For kidnapping. Yeah. So nine months he goes to jail and he gets out. Comes after me for visitation again. So they end up giving him supervised visitation rights. So he had to be at my choice of a location with one of his family members and my family members and a mediator. And we made it so I wasn't involved because clearly he was after me. It wasn't my daughter. He didn't give a shit about her. He wanted to get near me. And so um, they gave it to him with the fact that either he showed up drunk, high, or whatever, three times, or he missed three visits. All rights were terminated until she was 18. And at this point, they had granted me a lifetime restraining order. And those weren't given out very often. And so I had a lifetime restraining order on him. And so he never showed up after that. And I literally lived in fear. Like everywhere I would go and my daughter, I couldn't take her out anywhere. She would only go to my brother and my dad. Like she was terrified of men. He, I don't know what he did to her, but she had diaper rash so bad between her legs it was blistering. She was so malnourished. I didn't see her for five days. He had her for five days. I didn't know where my daughter was. And so he finally fades off, um, but I still lived in fear, you know, not knowing where, what was going to happen. And then eventually I got a letter from prison and it was from him saying how sorry he was, you know, and that he wishes me nothing but the best. And he hopes that one day I can forgive him and, and just this peace letter. And then I never heard from him ever again. Like, but I lived in fear of this man up until about four years ago, I found out that he was killed in a bike accident. So he's no longer walking this earth. And honestly, it, God rest his soul, but it's such a relief to know that that man is not on this earth anymore. Like, I don't have to have, that's one less thing in my life that I have to worry about. Because you never know if somebody's all of a sudden going to get a wild hair and be like, you know what? I, I want her back again. You know, like I lived in fear of that man. I mean, he was a drug addict. Sounds like. Alcoholic, drug addict. You know, so unpredictability. Yeah. I mean, unpredictable behavior is going to happen time and time again. Yeah. And abuse is going to keep happening because it's ingrained in that guy. Yeah. That guy is abuser. Yeah. And obviously he controls women by fear. My daughter did meet him when she was like 21 or 22. She's 28 now. She did go and meet him one time and she came back and she said, I never want to see that man ever again. It was that bad. Yeah. Like he, I guess, pulled out like this big fat wad of cash. It was like trying to buy her and like, she's like, no, she's like, I'm good. She's like, I just wanted to see you one time. Wow. It, yeah. Just kind of like closure for? Yeah. Was that what it was? Is closure? Yeah. I think so. Yeah. You know, yeah. that's that's wild. I don't understand how a parent can't be involved into their little kids' lives. It oh man, it's just heartbreak. That's break. That's heartbreak. So how are you dealing with this? Did you did you like turn to a vice of your own? Or no, I think I just 
My dad always embedded in my head that there's nothing you can do about it now. Just move forward. And I think that's why I crashed so hard when I fell into drugs because I bottled everything up and just kept going. Like it's done and over with, like, just, just keep going. Like, you know, and I'd, I'd hear my dad's words um, in my head, just keep going. There's nothing you can do about it now. Um, so I think that's just what I did. Like, and that actually turned out to be probably one of the worst things that I could have ever done in my entire life. Absolutely. Just keep moving forward. Don't think about it. Yeah. But that's, that's the old school way of thinking. It's just like rub dirt on it. It'll be fine. Yeah type of mentality. It's like, no, it won't be fine. These are leaving a long lasting scars on us. Yeah. And this is totally the wrong way of doing it because I'm not going to live a healthy life if I just keep bottling everything up and not letting it go. Yeah. So from there, um, I met one of my brother's friends uh, who was a really good guy, just a really good guy. And being a burn victim, people didn't realize um, how insecure I was, you know, trying to get into a relationship with somebody, um, being comfortable in my own skin, you know, wearing long sleeves and staying covered up because I didn't want people to know I was a burn victim. Like I, I battled that battle too, on top of everything else that I was going through because he made me feel like nobody was ever going to want me you know, and that's a a bigger part of the reason why I stayed, you know, because he was a family friend and I was like, oh, well, you know, he knows my family. So he knows what happened to me. So he's going to accept me, you know, like I had just this terrible mentality on myself and my, my insecurities and being a burn victim that I didn't feel like I deserved to have, you know, anybody. Like I felt like, you know, nobody was going to want to be out in the world with a girl that was disfigured, you know, or looked like her. Like it was just, it was a terrible mindset. Well, you didn't have anybody from the time it happened till we haven't got there yet, but the confidence, you didn't have anybody building you up. It was just your accident happened, the mother passing, your dad leaving. And then now this string of events. Yeah. There was no confidence building. There wasn't somebody saying we've got you. You're a beautiful lady. Yeah. There was no education either. I mean, my dad made me go to school. um, And I was terrible in school. Like my principal hated me because I just, I I would go to first period because, you know, you have to go to first period so they don't call home. But second period was driver's ed. And I sure as hell wasn't missing that. I wanted my (laughs) license. (laughs) I was like, I got this all worked out. Man, kids these age, <laughs> these days are just crazy. Like they don't want to go get their license. Right. I was itching. Like, yeah, yeah. give me some wheels. I was a wheel right. so I can get the hell away. I was the same way. I was like, I had it planned out. I was like, man, first period, second period. <laughs> and then I used my disability being a burn victim with my PE teacher in third period. So not only 
did I take the TA for third period, but I TA'd his fourth period and his fifth period. How I did that, I don't even know how I made that happen, but I did. And I was like that for a long time. So I went to first period, second period, but then I started hanging out with, because back then I went to El Camino Real. So back then we bust in all the downtown LA kids to our school. So we had police scanners. We had an on-campus police department. Like, and they would, all the kids from Inglewood, like, you know, so we would all hang out and like whatever, but there would be a security guard at every gate. Like you couldn't get in or out. Like they, they had it under, under wraps. Well, I made friends with this security guard. And so he would let us out as long as we brought him back food or <laughs> whatever, whatever oh. we needed. And, oh my um, God. Uh, this story, you're going to laugh, but this story today is still told. Like if I run into people I went to high school with, they're like, oh my God, I was just telling somebody about this story a, a while ago. There's a story that floats around that everybody laughs at. Um, that security guard that let us out, he let us out this one in particular day. And d- down the road from where the high school is, it's called Valley Circle. And that's where everybody parked their cars. And my girlfriend, Nikki, and I, we had gotten out the gate and we were walking down the sidewalk. And all of a sudden I hear my principal, Miss Davila, running in her heels. And she always wore those three-quarter pencil skirts. And she, you hear it, so it's like really quick, like click, 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 click. And then I hear the walkie-talkie. She's calling for backup. She's coming after me. And so I turn around and I look and I was like, oh, shit. So me and my girl, Nikki, we start running. And we're running to her car and we get in her car and we pull up right next to her. And I looked at her and I said, not today. And I double flipped her off (laughs) and we (laughs) left. And so today people still talk about this, this girl that had her principal chasing her down Valley Circle. And I was like, yeah, that was me. So the very next day I ended up back in school and she moved my girlfriend to the continuation school and kept me at, at the, the top of the school. And I had to have every teacher sign that I was in my class every single day. Like she had me on restriction. And then finally one day it came back to, she was like, get in my office. And, you know, I <laughs> turned around and said, F you. And she's like, get in my office. And so I'm sitting there and she goes, call your dad. And I said, you call my dad. You're the one that brought me in here. I mean, I was an asshole. And so she picks up the phone and she calls my dad. My dad goes, what's, what's happened now? What, what's on today's, what's on Brandy's agenda today? And she says, well, you know, your daughter uh, is very disrespectful. She told me to F off. And my dad goes, and? And she goes, well, you need to control your daughter. He goes, there's no hope for her you handle it and hangs up the phone. Yeah. I mean, there is a lot of hope <laughs> later down the line. Later on but, down the line. Yeah. You know, I, I get that. Um, so how do we, how do we go? So here we are now. Rocking and rolling, you're being a knucklehead in school. How do you go to getting into Hollywood? I know there's a lot more story to this. Yeah. So 
to get into Hollywood, uh, let's just say I was married for 13 years and I was with a man who had like this ideal type of woman that he wanted to be with. Wait, this, okay. So you went through high school, you're with this guy mm-hmm. and now you're married. You get married young. At 20. At, so 20. at 20. So you're going back to what you were saying, relationship to relationship, relationship, because as soon he as I can get into one. friend and I knew he was going to accept me. You didn't venture outside of the uh, circle very often, huh? No. No? <laughs> no, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so family friend and you knew he was a one. I mean, it started that way. Yeah. It started really, really great. And then I ended up getting pregnant and my brother had called and said, I'm getting married, meet us in Reno. And I found out I was pregnant and he's like, well, we might as well get married. It wasn't a, we're madly in love, like that kind of thing. It was like, I am pregnant and let's do the right thing. So we end up spending 13 years together. Um, it wasn't a bad marriage. I think, uh, the hard part for me was as I was so young and I was still trying to figure out who I was, you know, and I'm still trapped in this body of being a victim. And I still wake up every day being reminded of that day by looking at the scars that are on my body, you know, and, and reliving that day every day. And people don't realize, you know, the trauma that, that I carry because I remember a lot of the accident. I, I remember seeing things that, that I wouldn't wish upon anybody, you know, and, and being a part of all of that. Um, so I live with that every day, waking up. How do you deal with that? How have you dealt with that? Um, because people who've gone through similar events in their life, it doesn't have to be a burn victim. It could be alcohol. It could be abuse. Yeah. You know, it could be addiction. How did you, how'd you deal with that? Um, I don't, honestly, I, I don't know that I did. I think that I just blocked it out. I just, I stayed busy. I stayed, you know, I was a mom of two kids. My daughter was in soccer full time. She was a cheerleader. My son raced BMX, was second in state, raced motocross, was at the skate parks. We were snowboarding. Like we stayed busy. Like, and I worked, I worked full time. So I just buried myself in in life and just being a mom and a wife that I didn't do anything for myself. You know, I, I still didn't know who I was. But towards the end of my marriage, I kept having conversations with him about getting tattooed and he just really wasn't about it. Like none of that. And then all of a sudden, you know, cause I had to have blonde hair. He led the blonde hair. I'm an actual, I'm actually a natural blonde. Um, so he wanted the blonde hair, you know, the certain look, whatever. Um, and I was wanting to, I was all of a sudden, all of a sudden having like these urges, like I wanted to dye my hair black, like I wanted black hair and I really wanted to get tattooed. Like, and that was probably like the last two or three years of my marriage and he just wasn't for it. And so unfortunately, you know, we had some events that, that took place in our, in our marriage that ended it. And uh, I don't think he, it was over with maybe a week and I had dyed my hair black. Like it was, <laughs> I was done. I was like, I want black hair. And so I dyed my hair black and he doesn't know this. I don't know if I'll ever see this either, but I took my wedding ring 
And I went to the closest jeweler that I could and I sold it for 300 bucks. It was like, by the time we were done paying for it, it was probably like a nine, $10,000 wedding ring. And I sold it for $300. And I went to the first tattoo shop that pulled up on the map. And I walked in and I said, I want a tattoo on my face. That was your first tattoo. Like nowhere else, not like an ankle tattoo uh, or just uh, somewhere, you know, hidden. I mean, I had the two, cute star people, you know. Like. I had two little, t- I had one on my heart and I had one on my ankle for my mom. I only had two tattoos. So yeah, it was the, fir- the first start of. So which one was it? It was the three stars right here on the side of my face over here. I've eventually added to it, but I looked at the guy and I said, I want three stars on my face. And he said, what does that represent? I said, that represents me and my two kids. And I put it next to my eyes so I wouldn't lose sight of what was most important to me. And he said, okay. Because he wasn't really keen on tattooing my face unless I had a really good reason why I wanted what I wanted. And so he's like, no, that's justifiable. Let's do it. Well, as I'm getting tattooed, I had a three-quarter sleeve on. So this burn goes all the way down to here, right here. And you could see a quarter of it. And this other tattoo artist was like, hey, is that a burn? And I said, yeah. And he said, have you ever thought about tattooing over them? And I said, well, I didn't know you could do that. And he goes, well, I don't know if you can either. He goes, but it's not going to hurt to try, right? And so I was like, oh, you know, wheels are turning in my head. Well, at the time... Uh, my son was racing BMX and he was racing with this kid who his grandpa was a tattoo artist and owned a shop in Simi Valley. And I was at the track one night and I said, hey, can I ask you a question? He said, yeah. I said, I'm a burn victim. And I said, I have all these scars. I said, can you tattoo over them? And he was like, well, I don't know. He said, well, let's try. And I was like, all right. So instantly it was this bond between the two of us. Like he was down for this project and I had the body for it. And he was, you know, just gun ho. I sat for six days straight for like two, two and a half months. I think it was before I got sick. I got sick. I had to take a break, but I sat for three, four, five hours every day, just powering away at every single burn. And the, the more that they disappeared, the more I was like, no, we're doing more, we're doing more, we're doing more, we're doing... Like, we were both so, like, mesmerized by how well the ink took to them. Like, my skin took it very well, but how well the burns took it as well. You know, because we had no idea if they were going to bleed out or if they were going to turn into a mess or whatever. We had no idea, but it didn't. Like, he did an amazing job. And so, all of a sudden, every inch that's getting covered... I'm getting a piece of, of me at the same time. Like it's like this just amazing transformation. And I'm the, the light inside of me is becoming brighter and brighter and brighter. And the smile on my face is becoming bigger and bigger and bigger. And the clothes that I'm wearing are becoming less and less and less. You know, I'm wearing t-shirts now. And then all of a sudden I'm wearing tank tops, which I hadn't worn, you know, unless it was around my close friends and family that knew I was a burn victim, like it just was, I was able to do it. And people weren't staring at me like I was some alien, you know, like this deformed. Tattooing was a type of therapy for you then. It was instantly my therapy. 
it changed my whole entire life. It changed my thought process. It changed how I felt. Um, my, my confidence came back. It did everything that therapy couldn't do for me. Like I sat in therapy for so, so long. And, you know, I finally, I had a conversation with this therapist and I said, look, I said, have you ever seen a bur- a body burn? And she said, no. I said, have you ever heard screams like that coming from somebody? And she said, no. I said, have you ever had a family member try to commit suicide in front of you? And she said, no. And I kept telling her all these things that I had gone through, you know, with everything. And I said, then how is it that you think you can help me? If you have not experienced any of these things in your life, how are you going to be able to tell me to navigate my day? How? And she goes, I've never had anyone ask me that question before. I said, respectfully, this is our last session because there's no way you can help me. And I realized in the process of tattooing is where my first reality show was created because I realized that this was my therapy. To feel that pain and watch that trauma disappear. It's never going to go away, you know, with you, but to, to not see it every day was going away. Like I didn't have to be reminded every day I look in the mirror, seeing those scars and being reminded of that day. All I see now is beautiful art. And that allowed me to be able to think of Mike and the good memories we had instead of being reminded of that day. You took the words right out of my mouth. I was about to say scars to art. That is, that, that's a phenomenal way of putting it because I do believe that scars could be covered up and can be a cycle for therapy. You know, not the only way, but a cycle for it because you're now it's no longer kind of having that power over you when you're looking into it. You look into the mirror you just saw the scars. Now you look in the mirror, you see art, mm-hmm. you know, and that affects you mentally. It that does. gives you that confidence. Like, whew, and it allowed what? me to mourn Mike the way I needed to mourn him. I needed to mourn that day instead of just that constant reminder of the airplane ride and the glass room and, you know, the pain and, and him and, you know, that day, like I didn't have that anymore. That's your story. And we're not even done with your story, but we're going to wrap this up and they're going to be able to hear the rest of your story on Patreon because we are going to wrap up this interview right here and go right into the after interview. So you go to our Patreon, become a badass community member, and subscribe, like, and share. Brandy, where can people find you at? Because we, you have some interesting things that are coming down the pipeline. And give us just a small few things that might be coming their way. So you can find me on Instagram at either Modified by Ink. Uh, that's a new page that I just added. Uh, Modified by Ink is my new reality uh, lifestyle show that is coming out. My co-host on the show is Queen Rock One, as well as I have a few other Ink Master artists uh, 
on my panel as well. Um, hopefully we'll have more for that in 2024, but you can find me now on angels and in ink. So it's three words, angels, the word I N and then the word I N K. Uh, you can follow me there and you can see it, find updates and all different types of things that I have going on. Wow. That's, you heard it. Stay tuned. Become a Patreon badass community member because you're going to hear how she went into Hollywood and Hollywood took something out of her and a scandal that's happened. So stay tuned and we're going to find out more about Brandy. Brandy, you are a badass because you continually got dealt a bad hand. You got burned, can, uh, disastrous relationships, abusive relationships. And people continually let you down along the way, but you didn't let that stop you no. from that burning desire. You had some addiction issues, but you didn't let that take control of the rest of your life. And you got two awesome kiddos out of this, but you're also put giving back to the community. And that's part of going through what we do is this transformation of all the things that we do. That makes you a badass because you're serving others, not just serving yourself. Yeah. Thank you. I thank you, Brandy. That. Really. Thank you. And every badass deserves a badass cup of coffee, <laughs> especially this roast right here. F you, California. Since you're leaving California, <laughs> I figured this would be the perfect roast for you. Um, she's going to Vegas. So yeah. uh, stay tuned. We'll be back. And go to Patreon. If you have a heroic story and you'd like to share it, get in contact with us. Our information's in the bio. Also, don't forget to hit the subscribe, like, and share. And then I'll see you on the next episode, badasses.